This program deals with themes of an adult nature and is intended for a mature audience. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. We must guard against the military-industrial complex. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! The questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! The power they took from the people will return to the people. The Matrix is everywhere. It is all around us. It is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. Shall I tell you what I find beautiful about you? You are in charge of every best when things are worse. Sooner or later, though, you always have to wake up. Be skeptical, but don't close your mind. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, please make yourself at home. To listen to all our shows, just go to veritasradio.com and subscribe. You will have access to all our seasons going back to 2008, and you'll get your login immediately. And have you listened to Sanitas Radio yet? Already three months on the air? And take a look at all the shows we've done. In just three months, it can change your life. And take a look at who's coming. You won't want to miss it. That's if you want to take control of your life. Go to sanitasradio.com to listen and subscribe. And don't forget, you can purchase MMS directly from us, as well as our futuristic metal-cased USB drives with all our seasons and bonus material. Just visit the Veritas store. To get in touch with us, for member support, media inquiries, you want to be a guest or are a whistleblower. There's a link for you by clicking on the contact button of our website at VeritasRadio.com. And tonight we discuss a very controversial topic with former police captain and co-founder of LEAP, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, right now on Veritas. Peter Christ, retired as a police captain after a 20-year career enforcing drug laws. From the beginning, Peter believed... The drug war can never be won and it is doing more harm than good. After retiring in 1989, Peter began speaking out publicly against the war. In 1993, he became one of the first members of Reconsider, 
one of the original forums on drug policy, involving speakers from many diverse backgrounds. Peter quickly developed into the group's leading spokesperson, appearing at hundreds of venues. Peter then originated the idea of creating LEAP, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, a drug policy reform group of current and former members of law enforcement modeled on Vietnam veterans against the war. In 2002, after four years of Peter's preparation, LEAP finally emerged as a viable international nonprofit education organization. Chris is one of the most experienced of the LEAP speakers, having performed before hundreds of civic, professional, educational, and religious organizations, plus conducting television and radio interviews in dozens of markets. Peter speaks of the drug war's impact on police and community relations, the safety of law enforcement officers and suspects, police corruption and misconduct, and the financial and human costs associated with current drug policies. These issues include the effect of drug prohibition on the judiciary, sentencing issues, prison populations, and minority communities, as well as the usefulness of drug education programs in reducing drug abuse. And to learn more about Peter Christ and LEAP, visit leap.cc. That's L-E-A-P dot C-C. And directly from Syracuse, New York, I'm privileged to welcome Peter Christ to Veritas. Hello, Mr. Christ, and welcome. Well, thank you, Mel, and I appreciate you sharing your audience with me. Absolutely. And not only we have people in the United States, but around the world who are listening to us. Right from the beginning, I have to ask you, how do you define it? Before we started, you were talking about how you define the word prohibition. Okay, well, prohibition, first off, we're law enforcement against prohibition. And when we formed this organization, we formed it to be a, a voice from law enforcement to speak out against the policy of prohibition. Now, we are focusing almost all of our energy on the drug war because that is the most grievous example of a prohibitionistic policy. But my own personal definition of the word prohibition is the prohibiting of consensual adult behavior. When you have activities between consenting adults that they choose to do together, and they're not doing it to anybody else or harming anybody else directly, other people may not like them doing it, but they're not making anybody else do it. When you make that activity illegal, you create crime in your society because there were no victims. Nobody was screaming, hey, this guy did this to me. These people were perfectly happy. And if there is money attached to this activity, you create violence in your society because if they have a dispute over the money, they can't go to the court system because what they're doing is now illegal. So they take it to the streets. When it comes to consensual adult activity, a sane, free society may wish to regulate it, but never prohibit it. Uh, I'll give you a, a wonderful example from America's own history. Back in the beginning of the 20th century, there was a period of time when there were people that were very upset about the blood sport, or as we call it, professional prize fighting. And many states outlawed it. They made it against the law. Well, that didn't stop the prize fighting. But instead of it being held in an auditorium downtown with a doctor at the ringside, it was out in a barn in the country someplace because now it was illegal. And if somebody got hurt, there were more people that got injured and more people that died to the legal world the rest of us live in. So we finally accepted the insane idea that two people would stand in the middle of a ring and pound each other even to the point of look at uh, Muhammad Ali, the condition he was left in from this. We allow that, but we regulate and control it. 
And that is what you do when you have activity like this. If you prohibit it, it doesn't stop it. There has never been a society on this planet that we have any historical record of, no matter how draconian they were, who prohibited a consensual adult act and had it stop it from happening. You know, no, we don't call prostitution the world's oldest profession because it just started last week. <laughs> okay. It's been around in every society on the planet. And in fact, I was at a presentation up in Maine a couple months ago and a guy says to me, um, I, any questions is the Rotary Club and the guy stands up and he said, well, I think it's kind of interesting. He says that we have a retired police captain who supports prostitution. And I said to him, supports prostitution? What are you talking about? I don't support prostitution. He said, well, from what you said here today, it sounds like you think it should be legal. I said, absolutely, I think it should be legal. That does not mean I support it. That means I accept the fact that it's going to be there. And what I'm concerned about is the pimps beating up their prostitutes or stealing money from their, their clients and 13 and 14-year-olds being worked forced to work in brothels. In a legalized, regulated marketplace, those problems go away. Consenting adults, that's the key right there. And was law enforcement instituted to protect people from themselves or to protect people from each other? Well, a guy, the guy that started what we call modern-day law enforcement was a guy by the name of Robert Peel. <clears throat> and he started the London Police Department back in the early 1800s. And he was very clear. He wanted to put a group of people into society that would protect people from other people doing them harm. That's what it was set up to do. And that's what we should be using it to do. You know, it's interesting. When you start using armed law enforcement on the streets of your community to enforce morality, okay, what people choose to do with each other, if you use them to enforce morality, the first question you have to ask yourself is, whose morality are we going to enforce? I mean, we could enforce Islamic morality. We could enforce Catholic morality. We could enforce Buddhist morality. We could enforce Presbyterian morality. All, all these groups have different concepts of what morality is. And none of these things should be forced on other people. <clears throat> the only thing that we should be doing in society is, again, protecting people from other people doing them harm. And the interesting thing about that is when law enforcement is very clearly doing that, people actually kind of like us a little bit. <laughs> I'll give you a perfect example. If you remember the Boston Marathon bombing? Sure. <clears throat> when they went in and they were searching those houses, a lot of illegal searches were going on and all that stuff. And an interesting thing I noticed being an old cop there were no ancillary arrests made on any of those searches. Now, what I mean by ancillary arrest is I go into a place with a warrant looking for this particular thing, but then I see this illegal thing sitting there. I could arrest those people for that because I'm legally in the house. Nobody saw a bong. Nobody saw or smelled anything. when They, they didn't care about that because they were looking for the bomber. And if you remember, when they finally got the last bomber and they were pulling their forces off of the scene, the people were standing in the street thanking them and applauding them because it was so clear why they were there. And they weren't there to enforce what drug you put in your body or who you sleep with or whatever. They were there simply to take somebody out who was trying to do harm to other people. And if we get law enforcement back to that, then we will start moving ahead in what we're trying to do. 
Now, what made you change your views about prohibition, even when you were still in law enforcement? Well, I'm going to really upset you <laughs> because I believed what I believe now about this drug policy before I became a cop. What happened was I was born in 1946. Uh, both of my parents were 42 years old when I was born. My brother and sister were 13 and 14. Now, I would ask my mother, why did you have me? And she would say, we wanted another baby. I would ask my father, why did you have me? And he would say, hey, the war was over and everybody was partying. Boom, there you were. So I was kind of a surprise. Right. But I was raised by two people that were born in Buffalo, New York in 1904. So they were 16 years old when alcohol prohibition started. And they were 29 years old and married to each other when it ended with my sister already being born at that time in 1933. When I was about 13, 14 years old, a television program came on called The Untouchables. And that was about alcohol prohibition. <clears throat> and I watched every episode of that, just like the kids today like watching the gangsters. I like watching the gangsters, too. And I had two people watching it with me who grew up during it, who lived during it, right on the Canadian border. I learned that my great uncle Walter, who I knew as being, it was my grandfather's brother, I knew him as being the ace mechanic who kept the seal test ice cream trucks on the road because he ran the garage. I found out from talking to my parents that between 1920 and 1933, my uncle Walter, living in Buffalo, New York, right across the river from Canada, owned a boat and used to make little rides across the water to pick up some booze and bring it back and make some extra money. Now, he wasn't a gangster. He was an opportunist, just like most of the people in the drug trade today. So we would talk about it. We would talk about it. My mother, the wonderful Baptist lady, would say, I would say, why didn't it work? And she would say, well, because the people didn't support it. Then I would ask my father, the fallen Catholic, why didn't it work? And he would say it didn't work because it was a stupid idea when they thought of it. By the time I got to be about 19, 20 years old, I became fascinated with that period, and I was reading everything I could get my hands on. And then I came across the fact that we had passed a constitutional amendment to enact alcohol prohibition. So that kind of weakened my mother's argument because that took a lot of support to amend the Constitution. So I started thinking that my father's idea was a little bit better. It was just a dumb idea. And I finally came to that conclusion at about 20, 21 years old. And then the only difference I saw between America, now that you got to remember, this is in the 60s. This is before Nixon kicked off the war on drugs and all that stuff. But we still had a drug policy. And it was still based on prohibition. And I looked at our current drug policy in America, and I looked at alcohol prohibition. And the only difference that I could see between those two things was the drug that was being prohibited. Everything else was exactly the same. The gangsters, the thugs, the shootouts, in the street, all that stuff was exactly the same. And I came to the understanding that we did not legalize alcohol in 1933 because some new scientific study just came out and told us, oh my goodness, we were wrong about alcohol. It's really wonderful stuff. You should give it to your kids. That isn't why we legalized it. We legalized it because we realized that no matter how hard we prohibited it, it was always going to be there. And all we accomplished by prohibiting alcohol was to create a huge underground marketplace with gangsters and thugs and terrorists involving themselves in that activity. And it's the same thing with the drug war today. 
I am not pro-drug. I suggest to everybody listening that they stay as drug-free as they could stay. I don't recommend any of these illegal drugs to anybody. But I believe that if we're going to have a free society like we claim it to be, then it should be my choice what I put in my body, not the federal government's. It's been over 40 years since Nixon kicked off the, the war on drugs. We haven't won that war. So why has this war not been ended, and why do politicians continue to support it, in your view? Well, I think there's a lot of reasons. I think some people honestly believe it, okay? I mean, there's always that group. Um, there's some. There's a group over in England called the Flat Earth Society, okay? So, you know, we know some people hang on to bizarre thoughts forever. And then there's also, particularly when you're talking about politicians, politicians who ran on this issue. And said, elect me and I'll make our streets safer. We'll put more people in jail and all this other stuff. So that's a problem for some of them. Some of them are just not sure. They don't understand the issue. They think that you're defending the drugs or something like that if you support a regulated and controlled marketplace. And and one thing I mentioned, because any time I mention this word, I always want to say this last other part about it. I mentioned our prison system. We have the largest prison system on the planet Earth. We lock up more of our citizens than any other society on the planet Earth. Roughly a third of those people are in there for nonviolent drug offenses. We have one of the most efficient prison systems on the planet Earth. Very seldom do you hear of anybody escaping from one of our prisons. We put you in there, you stay there until we let you go. And in that huge, efficient prison system, do you want to take a guess at how many drug-free prisons we have? None. Exactly. Now, I want people that are listening to this show, the next time they're out shopping or driving around their neighborhood, and they drive by the local school, and they see that sign out in front that says, Drug-Free School, remember something. We do not have one drug-free prison. And let me tell you the difference between the people in the prisons and the people in the schools. The people in the schools have all their liberties, and the people in the prison don't have any, and yet we can't keep drugs out of prison. So who's going to believe that sign, drug-free school? We have to bring this drug problem. I just heard the drug czar the other day, and he was giving a speech, and he said, well, we understand that this drug problem is fundamentally a health care and a medical issue. Well, that struck me as kind of strange. What struck me as strange is not one reporter asked the question that I was screaming to ask, and that is, tell me, Mr. Drug czar, what other educational and healthcare issue, should we spend 90% of our money on the criminal justice system to deal with? If it's a healthcare and an educational problem, then we should be dealing with this problem through the healthcare and the educational system, not through the criminal justice system. And what you said about the prison system of the United States, folks, we have less than 5% of the world's population, but almost one quarter of the world's prisoners. What is it, 2.4 million prisoners in China, which is four times more populous than the U.S., has about 1.6 million become second worldwide. So if the prisoners really are not rehabilitated, what is then happening there? Why do we have to send petty crimes there? Why isn't why are we focusing our law enforcement officers in the important crimes, pedophilia, theft, uh, murder, etc.? 
You know, well, it, it's it's interesting. That's exactly what law enforcement should be focusing on, and that's the aspect that we are being drawn away from with this drug stuff. And let me tell you something: the drug stuff is fun. <laughs> I'm not going to joke about it. I mean, I'm dead serious. It's fun to go out and do undercover work and all this other stuff. It's, it, it just simply isn't something we should be doing. You know, I mentioned before that law enforcement started with Robert Peel over in London, England, and he he wanted a group to enforce protecting people from each other. In fact, what they call over in England, they call the cops bobbies. That's from Robert Peel. Okay, right. That's where that nickname comes from. And uh, we, a good friend of mine is an addiction psychiatrist up here in Syracuse. He said to me many years ago, he says, you know what the problem with this country is? And I said, well, I got a list. And he said, well, yeah, but here's the big one. The Puritans. When they got kicked out of England, if they had landed on the shores of Belgium or France, they would have been told, make peace with your morality or stay on the boat. Instead, they came over here. And what's the first things that they built? Institutions of higher learning? No. Pillories, dunking schools, punishment. We, they used to arrest people and put them in, in the pillory for whistling on Sunday. We had all kind, And we're still left with that legacy. You know, the, the gay issue is a big thing on the front page now, and everybody talks about the gay issue. Um, it was illegal, and, and everybody's talking about over in England it's Ill, or over in Russia, it's illegal to be gay. It was illegal to be gay in New York State until 2002, okay? So we've done this before with many other aspects of people's behavior. We, used to, we, we in New York State had a law called the Consensual Sodomy Law, and it made consensual sodomy between consenting adults legal if they were married to each other. And obviously, gay people couldn't get married to each other, so if they were having sex, you could arrest them for that. Now, that's insane. We look at that today, and we think that's nuts. But yet, we did it as a nation. You know, there's, there's a whole list of things that were very profoundly stupid ideas that we did in this country for very long periods of time. Slavery was a stupid idea, not just morally that one person would treat another person as property, but slavery was economically a stupid idea. If I want you to work for me, it is much more economically sensible for me to buy 40 hours of your time and pay you and let you figure out where you're going to live and eat than it is for me to own you. Okay, so it was not even a good economic idea, but we did it for 100 years and hooray for us. We ended it. And what do we replace it with? A hundred years of segregation. We might have a cure for cancer today. Who knows what geniuses, just because they happen to have more melanin in their blood, that we pushed outside the fringes of the system and we lost them forever because of our stupid policy. And the one I like to hit on the hardest, and I want all the women out there to uh, understand that I appreciate this, I want to thank all the women listening right now for representing a group of people, women, who studied real hard and finally, by 1920, became intelligent enough to vote. Well, you know that I'm being facetious about that, or as my wife says, I'm being feces about that. <laughs> right. um, women were always intelligent enough to vote. It's just that for 150 years, we stopped women from voting in this country. That was never a good idea, but we did it for a long time. This drug war was never a good idea. And as you said, 40 years, I go all the way back to 1914 with the Harrison Narcotics Act, when it really first started, that we started using this behavior. 
And it strikes me as interesting that when we wanted to prohibit alcohol, we found it necessary to first give the power to the government to do that by amending the Constitution. I don't recall a constitutional amendment that gave the power to government to prohibit drugs. Now, if they didn't have the power before to prohibit alcohol until we amended the Constitution, where do they get the power to do it now? Yeah, that's a question. And another part, when alcohol was legalized again, wasn't the federal government, didn't they, said, didn't they say to the state, you deal with it now? And even today, there are dry, dry counties today, so why couldn't the same thing happen with drugs? Well, in 1966, Mississippi legalized alcohol. That's, that was the last dry state in the United States, okay? And, and yes, that, now that would be one way for us to do it. In fact, I had somebody say to me once, uh, give me a definition. What does legalization mean? When you talk about legalization of drugs, what does legalization mean? And what I tell people it means is the elimination of Schedule 1. Now, just for your listeners who don't know what I mean when I say Schedule 1, the Food and Drug Administration schedules drugs in America. Schedule 1 drugs are banned. You cannot produce them. You cannot possess them. You cannot do research on them. You can't do anything. They are banned. Schedule 2 drugs are very tightly regulated, things like morphine and oxycodone under the prescription drug program. Schedule 3 drugs are regulated under a prescription drug program, but not quite as tightly watched. Schedule four drugs are what we call regulated over-the-counter drugs. You don't need a prescription to buy them, but you have to have proof of ID and show that you're 18 years or older, and then they will sell them to you. And schedule five is everything else, aspirin, Alka-Seltzer, that the FDA controls and all they care about for those things. If we take the schedule one and eliminate it and say there is no more schedule one, no more banning of drugs, then we're going to be in a regulation discussion. Let me give you an example. <clears throat> a number of years ago, we had a huge debate in this country about a pill. Um, I'm going to give both definitions of this pill because I don't want to offend anybody. It's either the morning after pill or the baby killing pill, depending on where you person looks at the situation. <clears throat> we debated on whether that pill should be allowed to be sold in America. That was the prohibition argument. We decided that that pill should be allowed to be sold in America, but it should only be allowed to be sold as a prescription drug. So you would have to first go to a doctor, get a permission slip, a prescription form, and then you could go buy the pill. All right. Just about three years ago, after seeing the pill under the prescription drug program for a number of years and seeing that it was safe, we took it off prescription. We moved it to Schedule 4. Now all you have to do to buy that pill is be 17 years or older and have ID and proof of age. They sell it to you without a prescription. We couldn't have made that regulatory change if we hadn't settled the prohibition argument 12 years ago. That's what this is about. Whatever we, in fact, I think, here's my prediction, and it's not going to make me happy, but it'll make a lot of people happy. I think that within the next year, you're going to see the Food and Drug Administration move marijuana out of Schedule 1 into the prescription drug program. And why I'm saying that that doesn't make me happy is because that's going to take a lot of energy out of the movement. Because a lot of the people that are in the movement on drug policy aren't really in it on drug policy, they're in it on marijuana policy. So we'll be, those people will now have marijuana will be legal under the prescription drug program, and then I'm sure for a few years, we'll talk about it. Maybe we'll move it off prescription, whatever. But 
um, that is the way for the federal government to back out of this kind of nicely. And But that'll still leave intact the methamphetamine, the heroin, the crack cocaine, all that stuff. And what will happen is we will, if they do that, we will now have marijuana be legal because it'll be available by prescription. And we'll have about a two-year lull. And then we're going to hear this. Wait a minute. You said if we legalize this stuff, the violence would stop. But we still got the gangs and we still got the shootings. And then we're going to have to go all the way back to the beginning and start talking about the problem of prohibition and have that discussion again. It's going. I'm 67 years old now. I retired in 89. I've been doing this stuff for 25 years. And I have no expectation of seeing an end to this policy in my lifetime. I think it's going to take longer than that for us to be educated out of this foolishness. I love figures. I love numbers because numbers don't lie. Correct me if I'm wrong here, but it used to be about 450,000 deaths per year due to tobacco. And I think that number's Mm -hmm. down due to more people quitting. 150,000 deaths a year due to alcohol and 30,000 deaths from all illegal drugs combined. And I think the number is zero for marijuana, by the way. But just by looking at these numbers, if tobacco and alcohol are on top of the list and they are legal, shouldn't they be illegal? Well, yeah. I mean, if you're going to be consistent, (laughs) if you want to be on the mark and you want to see crime in a society, let's prohibit tobacco. Let's let's see what happens if we do that. I'm sure that if we do that, every American smoker will just quit smoking, and that'll be the end of the problem. Sure. You know, we used to have we used to have a huge enterprise that was run by the mob in this country, and they used to have kids working for them, 13, 14 year old kids helping them make money. And what it was was a game called the numbers racket. Okay, and the thing was, you would bit your nickel, dime, quarter on certain numbers, and then there would be a drawing, and you would win whatever. But it was illegal. It was you couldn't do that. It was gambling. It was wrong. And then one morning we woke up, and the numbers racket shut down, just all by itself, closed down completely. Now that was the same day that we started a thing called the lottery, because what we did when we started the lottery was we legalized the numbers racket. And we took it out of the hands of gangsters and thugs. And we don't have 13 and 14-year-olds running numbers for the mob anymore. Those days are over with, pretty much, except maybe in a little bit in big cities, but almost not at all. It used to be all over the country. And there's always, you got to remember, there's always good and bad in everything. Uh, the, one of the bad things about legalizing the lottery is if you win, you got to pay taxes. Because everybody knows you won, and the government wants their tax money. On the other hand, if you win real big with the lottery, you get paid. Sometimes when the mob ran it, if you won real big, you didn't get paid, you got dead. That's right. So there's always a, there's always a wash in everything we do, you know, good and bad. But we, we decided that we can't make this go away. We decided that if it's going to be part of our society forever, that what we have to do is regulate and control it. And it's a much better system now than it was when the mob was running it. How much money do we spend, in your opinion, fighting the drug war per year? Well, the number that I use is roughly $80 billion a year that we have from the federal government. That's on the federal level. The federal government spends. That includes everything, foreign stuff that we're doing and, you know, prisons and the whole shot. That's $80 billion a year, first off, that we don't need to be spending. And also, you have to look at it, just like I mentioned paying taxes if you win the lottery, 
I'm sure, in fact, they're seeing this in Colorado right now with marijuana, they're making a chunk of money on taxes on this stuff. So not only could we have the no longer going to the mob, but being able to regulate and control the market and control purity and all that other stuff, but now the government can actually generate income out of this. And a, a, one of the big things, and it's not my issue, marijuana is not my issue at all, but one of the things that we did when we banned marijuana was we banned hemp. And hemp is a very big thing. Let me tell you a little story. We banned marijuana in 1937. That's when the laws came out against marijuana. And the federal government went around immediately and started burning all the hemp fields that were growing in America. And then an incident happened on December 7th, 1941, in a place called uh, Hawaii. Okay, And we got involved in an ocean war. Now, I'm an old Navy guy, and let me tell you something about ships. You can build the biggest, greatest ships in the world, but if you don't have a rope, when you come out in the morning, the ship ain't there. So you have to have ropes if you have ships to tie these things up and stuff like that. And you make rope out of what? Hemp. Now, we used to get our hemp from India and the Philippines, but when we got involved in the Second World War with the Japanese, we didn't have access to the Philippines. So the federal government came out with a little movie and sent it around to American farmers, and the title of the movie was Hemp for Victory, to get American farmers to start growing hemp again so we could make rope. And then you know what we did at the end of the war? We went around and we burned all the hemp fields again. Now, that That's that makes insane. no sense, absolutely. And, and and not only was it ropes, bricks. I even heard that Henry Ford used hemp to build some of the cars, and you could hit it with a hammer, and you could not even break it. So the hemp industry, if it could be revived right now, it would kill the recession. It would bring so many millions of jobs. It, plus fuel. You can get hemp. We can get fuel from hemp, like we get fuel from corn and stuff like that. You can get fuel from hemp. You know, it's interesting when they banned <laughs> when they banned alcohol in 1920. They didn't ban corn. <laughs> interesting. They could have. Interesting. You know, but they didn't go around and burn all the corn fields, you know, because they realized that that's got another use and there's other. And the, it's the same thing with the hemp situation. Uh, our Jefferson and Washington. There's letters between them that have that I've read. <clears throat> about their hemp that they were growing and how these seeds were for this hemp and these seeds were for this hemp. So they weren't not only growing it, but they were smoking it too. So this has been part of our culture. It's been part of our human culture. Uh, it is a very normal thing for human beings to do things to alter their consciousness. Some people doing it do it by taking long walks in the woods. Some people doing it by adjusting drugs. Some people doing it by reading a book. But we all need to do that, to step outside of reality for a little bit. And that's what this is, concerned, that this is concerned with, people's right to choose what they do in a free society. You know, I have, I have two words that I have my own personal definition for. The first one is the word fascist. And before I give you my definition of that word, I want to mention that a good friend of mine always said that there's only two kinds of people in the world, the kind of people that think there's only two kinds of people in the world, and the kind of people that are smarter than that. Okay, so knowing that, I'm going to say there's two kinds of people in the world. <laughs> there's the fascists and the normal people. And here's how you tell the difference between the two. 
if a fascist has a great new idea, or I mean, if a normal person has a great new idea, what they do is they actualize it. If other people admire it, they share it with them. Now, I'm a capitalist. They may share it for a profit, but they share it if requested, okay? When a fascist has a great new idea, the next thought that comes into the fascist head is, this is such a good idea, we ought to make everybody do it this way. And you can be a fascist anything. You can be a fascist Republican, Democrat, Libertarian. You can be a fascist anarchist if you think that you have a right to force this opinion that you have on other people. The other word that I have my own definition for is the word liberty. Uh, the only political philosophy that we actually have that I can think of two monuments built to, the Statue of Liberty and the Liberty Bell. So liberty seems to be an important thing to us. And here's how I define the word liberty. The right to be as stupid as you choose to be as long as you do not harm another person or another person's property. Now, I always have people get a smile on their face when I say that. They think I'm being silly, but believe me, I'm being dead serious. And let me tell you why. There is a phenomenon that I have noticed throughout all my reading of history and everything else. And this phenomenon is called stupid, crazy genius. And here's how it plays out. Mel, you and I grew up together. We had this friend named Tom. You've been out of town for a long time. You come back for a visit. You and I are talking. <clears throat> and you say to me, what's Tom up to? And I say, oh, man, we used to think he was smart. I'm telling you, he's stupid. He's wasted the last two years of his life over on top of the hill over there. And are you ready for this? He thinks he's going to catch light inside of a glass ball and light the whole world. I mean, how stupid can you be? Two years later, we run into each other again. You ask me, how's Tom doing? I tell you, <laughs> I'm telling you, he's out of his mind. He's crazy. He's wasted four years now of his life. He's a brilliant guy. He, with four years of his life, he's wasted. He's insane. A year later, we run into each other. And before you get a chance to see a word, I say to you, did you hear about Tom? He's a genius. He caught light inside a glass ball. He's going to light the world. Stupid crazy genius. The first person that comes up with the new idea in our species is labeled by everybody else as being stupid. If they persist in that, we then label them as crazy. And then when the rest of us figure it out and catch up, we then call those people geniuses. Now, before anybody goes anywhere, I want to make it very clear that at least 95% of the stupid, crazy people are in fact stupid and crazy, okay? Only about 5% are ever going to be geniuses. But until we get to the point that we do not need geniuses anymore, we have to protect all the stupid people because you don't know until the whole thing plays out which ones are the geniuses and which ones are the stupid people. And that's what you do in a free society. Again, you don't allow them to harm other people or other people's property but they can be as stupid in the concept of their own life or the other people around them that want to be stupid with them. That's their business in a free society. That's what I call liberty. Well, as Gandhi said, for any new ideas, we can apply that too. First, they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, and then you win. But going back to hemp for a second, do you think the hemp industry was outlawed because it became a threat to the petrochemical industry, plastics? Absolutely. And synthetic fibers that DuPont was producing, right. just starting to produce. 
And they, DuPont was a big one that was a big pusher for the hemp uh, and the marijuana illegalization. The, the vested interest. I mean, we should never be we should never be shocked when our species is involved in vested interest. <laughs> we do that all the time, you know. And it's and you should you should always look for it in anything if something is moving along. So who's making a buck off of it? Somebody's doing well with it, and that's what it was. It was to get rid of that. I, I'm sure we would still have nylon and all these synthetic fibers, but hemp solved a lot of those problems. Made was very good for a lot of the things that they were using synthetic fibers for. Now, with the prohibition, obviously it's not working. Do you think also that the the governments need they need to resource their power somehow? You know, uh, engage their military, police, criminal justice systems, and all justified in the war against the global quote-unquote, drug menace. Can we model some other countries that have legalized drugs and how we can compare it to, to us? Well, there, there really is no countries that have legalized drugs because there is a uh, UN uh, treaty. treaty that prohibits anybody from doing that, okay? So what you do is you have places like Portugal, which completely decriminalized their drug marketplace. In fact, interestingly enough, alcohol prohibition was decriminalization, by the way. It wasn't just prohibition because we didn't arrest the users during alcohol prohibition. We just arrested the suppliers and the manufacturers and stuff like that. We didn't go after the users. With this drug war, we go after the users. You know, we're arresting just the people for using. So it, and it, in fact, it's interesting. I, I was watching Bill Maher the other night and he says he was all because he's all excited about the marijuana thing, and you know, I'm happy for him. Um, but uh, he said decriminalization, legalization—you know—nobody ever told me what the difference between those two were. Well, if anybody doesn't know the difference between the two, I will explain it. Decriminalization means that the, it is still against the law; it is just no longer classified as a misdemeanor or a felony which are criminal criminal acts. It is just a violation. So when you, for instance, you hear states that have decriminalized marijuana and stuff like that, it's still against the law in those states. It's just that it's a very minor fine and so on and so forth. But decriminalization is not legalization. Legalization means it's legal, regulated, and controlled, like the alcohol marketplace is legal. All right? So there's another little phraseology thing that I like to make sure people understand because legalization and decriminalization are not the same thing. And it's, it's again, you know, it, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I'm a cigarette smoker. All right. Uh, back in about 1990, I quit buying, <laughs> but if I'm around people that smoke, I like to smoke. So I'll move cigarettes off of them. Um, I remember back in the seventies and the sixties, when I was a smoker, when us cigarette smokers were absolutely condoned in America, I would walk into your office in the 1970s and light a cigarette and ask for an ashtray. I would never ask, could I smoke? (laughs) That was never a question. Okay. I could get on an aeroplane in New York city and fly all the way to Los Angeles and smoke all the way. And the only thing that separated the smoking section from the rest of the plane was the cloth curtain. That's right. Yeah, or seats. Exactly. So cigarette smokers were completely condoned. 
You ask any cigarette smoker today if they feel condoned, and they will tell you that they feel barely tolerated by the rest of society. So just because something is legal doesn't mean we condone it. It means that we accept the reality that it's going to be there and we do what we have to do to regulate it and control it to make it as safe as possible for the people that are going to choose to use it. And look at the huge success rate we have had. We've gotten 50% of our adult cigarette smokers in this country to give up smoking. That's an amazing accomplishment. How many tobacco fields did we have to burn to do that? None. How many tobacco sellers did we have to arrest to do that? None. We just educated the public, made it a little bit less convenient to smoke, and we've gotten many, many people to give up tobacco. That, this is how you deal with these problems. Now, we could do what they did in Canada, and they created, a few years ago, they created an illegal marketplace with tobacco because they raised the price up to about $10 a pack. And as soon as they did that, all of a sudden they had not a black market, but what I call a gray market. Now, the difference between a black market and a gray market is this. Uh, a black market is the selling of illegal things in an illegal marketplace. <clears throat> a gray market is the diversion of legal things into an illegal marketplace. For instance, Rush Limbaugh didn't buy his oxycodone off the black market. He bought it off the gray market. So when he got it, he knew that when it was made, it was manufactured legally and everything else. It's just that somewhere it got diverted and he bought it from somebody else. In Canada, they created a gray market with tobacco. They had smugglers smuggling cigarettes across the border. They had shootouts in the streets of Ottawa fighting over the marketplace. They had kids not just using peer pressure in the schools to get other kids to smoke, but marketing cigarettes to other people in, in the in the schools to smoke. And the reason is, is because they raised the price on tobacco so high that even honest people were willing to buy it from an illegal seller. We have the same thing going on in New York City now, where cigarettes are like up to about $15 a pack or something. And there's a huge gray market in New York City of people that are going to other states and buying cases of cigarettes and then coming up and selling them for $10 a pack and, and making a nice profit on it. We have to understand that when we do regulate these things, we have to balance our regulation. To we, I, I use the example of this. I, I refer to the cliff of prohibition. And what you want to do in a sane society is bring your regulation as close to the edge of the cliff of prohibition as you can get without taking that fatal step over the edge. Because once you take over the step over the edge, you lose all control. So what you want to do is set your taxes so that people are willing to pay them and, and control the marketplace. That's what we know we can do. Can't make these things go away. I mean, trust me, if it was, when I do presentations, one of the questions I ask my audience is this. Nixon decided to call this a war on drugs. Now, there's so many reasons why that was a terrible choice of words, and I'll get into it later, but when he kicked off the war on drugs, he didn't tell us what victory would look like. Now, I, I'm, a, a Navy, I'm, a, I'm a Vietnam era veteran, not a Vietnam War veteran, okay? But I was in the service during the period of Vietnam War. I was never in Vietnam. But if you're going to send me to war, before I go, there's one thing I want to know. And that is, what does victory look like? Because I want to know when I can come home. 
I want to know when the war is over. Well, Nixon never told us what victory looks like. So I'm going to use World War II as an example. We, the Allies, defeated the Axis and won World War II. Okay, now that doesn't mean that every couple months or so we're fighting the Italians and the Germans and the Japanese a little bit. It means the war's over, it's done, we're finished, we come home. Now, if we use that same example of one war for the war on drugs, that means that we have defeated the drugs, the drugs are gone, we have taken the word heroin and marijuana out of the dictionary because we don't even use those words anymore, we've eliminated them from society. And I'll look at a group of Rotarians or Kiwanis or Lions or whatever group I speak to, and I'll say, raise your hand if you think that's possible. And I have yet to see a hand go up. Which means that everybody accepts this fact, that no matter what we do, Drugs are always going to be part of our society. So here's the only question we should have. Who is going to run the marketplace? Do you want it run by gangsters, thugs, and terrorists who are killing people in the streets and fighting over it? Or do you want it run by a licensed, legitimate market? Those are the only two choices we have. Drug-free is not a choice. The other thing about the Nixon calling this a war on drugs is he started that military concept. When I was a cop, before I became a lieutenant and a captain, I was a patrol officer and I was a senior training officer. So I used to train other guys when they came on. And the last session that we would have together, I would tell them that there was something that you should always remember. And that is every time you make an arrest, you are arresting your boss because we work for the people. Now, the military doesn't. The military works for the government, okay? Not just for the people, but for the government. And when you mix military and police training, you get very, very bad results. Let me give you a perfect example. Do you remember the Waco incident? Sure. Okay, those ATF officers, before they made that raid, spent two weeks at a military base training to do the raid by military people. Then they went in. And I remember this distinctly, watching it as it was happening on the news. As they were dragging their dead and wounded ATF officers off the scene, one of the ATF guys said to a reporter, We couldn't shoot unless we had a definite target. You see, that's a police concept. If you're in the military and you're taking fire from a building, you know what you do? You blow the building up. You're at war. Scorched earth policy. Exactly. And if you're in the police and you're taking fire from the building, you get the guy that's shooting at you. That's who you go after. You don't blow the building up. You don't kill everybody in the building. We don't have collateral damage in police work, or we shouldn't. And what happened to those ATF officers is they spent two weeks with the military, all rah, 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 and they went in. And then when they got in, they resorted back to their profession, and they just couldn't spray the building with fire. They had to not shoot unless they had a definite target, and it got them killed. That's what this type of thing does. I I worked for an old-time cop when I first started on the job. He had been on the job since the late 40s. And he said to me, you know, if you're going to have a military in your society and you're going to have a police force, 
You should train the military on the East Coast and the police force on the West Coast or vice versa. They should never train together because they are so completely different jobs. And they really are. You know, we have we have laws in the society that prevent us from using our military against our own citizens. Policy coming taught us. Yep. Absolutely. So it's it, we, we understand that. But we, we blur it now with this drug war. And by the way, speaking of uh, doctors and, and, and the Marlboro man, by the way, he just died a few days ago of lung cancer. Remember when the advertisements and TV commercials, all they had was TV, people smoking. Uh, you would turn on the six o'clock news. The person was chain smoking, even going to the doctor's office. Doctors would smoke in their offices and the tobacco producers loved it. Now, and as a child, as you mentioned, flying on planes, I remember sitting behind the smoking area <laughs> how do you cover right. a plane from smoking but anyway people are shunned now and this is based on education so those 80 mm -hmm. billion dollars that we spent now fighting this stupid war on drugs or war for drugs as i call it shouldn't we channel that to education and healthcare? Absolutely, absolutely, and put it in, put that money in the training and so on and so forth for healthcare professionals. Educate and do do honest drug education, not dare education. Just say no stuff. But here's what the drug is like. This is what it does. You know, it's it's interesting. Um, I grew up in New York State, and when I was a kid growing up in New York State, the drinking age was 18. Okay. So I, because of some things that were happening in my own life at home and stuff like that, not bad things, but uh, my father got sick with cancer when I was in the second half of my junior year of high school and he died two years later. Okay. So I, it basically, and my mother and father were a great love affair. So when he got cancer, I was kind of out of the picture. I mean, they still took care of me and did everything they were supposed to do, but they were spending their time on that because he was dying and that was that. So I was out every night when I was about 16 and a half years old, because I looked a little older than I was and I had phony proof and I hung, everybody I hung around with was older than me. All right. I always hung around with an older crowd. I was out every night in bars. Now, when I was sitting in a bar, I would hear, Hey kid, we don't act like that in here. If you're going to act like that, get, get the hell out of here. You know? And I was taught how to drink. I was taught what was acceptable. What wasn't. Now we raised the drinking age to 21. Now, we have just as many 16, 17, and 18-year-olds drinking, but they're not drinking with adults around them. They're drinking with a bunch of other 16, 17, and 18-year-olds. We buried more kids in the town of Tonawanda, a place where I worked, which is a community of about 85,000 residents. We had about 120 officer police department. We buried more kids that died of alcohol poisoning than any other drug overdose situation. Okay. And it was simply because nobody was training them how to use it. I do rotary clubs and a lot of times there'll be at a rotary club meeting, a foreign exchange student from some other country. And if they're from a Western European country, I've asked this question now 10 times and nine times I've gotten the same answer. I asked them when you came to America, what is the strangest thing that about the American youth that you notice because they came to America as high school seniors. So they met all these high school seniors in America. Nine times out of 10, when I asked this question, I got the answer, the way they drink, not that they drink, but the way that they drink, 
because these people come from Spain, France, Italy. Some of these countries do not even have a drinking age. They've been sipping wine at dinner with their parents. They learn a whole culture around the use of this drug. And then they come to America and they meet our youth. And for the first time in their life, they hear these words. Hey, let's go out on Friday night and get hammered. Not go out and party, but go out to get drunk. And they never heard that before until they came to America. We need to start understanding that if you want, you know, I want you to be able to drive safely. And I know that a very fast uh, Ferrari is not a good car for you to drive. So what I'm going to do is I'm not going to let you ride in any cars. I'm not going to let you drive any cars. I'm not going to do anything until you're 21. And then I'm going to hand you the keys to the fastest Ferrari I can find and hand you the keys and tell you to be safe. <laughs> well, that's not going to work, is it? We need some driver ed. We need some education in there someplace before you get the keys so that you know what you're doing. And it's the same thing with using drugs in society. People have to be educated about this. Drug use is not cool. It is not neat. Uh, for most of the people, for the vast majority of the people, drug use is in fact that drug use. Only about 10% of the people are addicted. So we're not talking, and that's every drug. Okay, the addiction rate for every drug is about 10 to 15 percent of the users are addicted to the drug, have addictive behavior. There was a study done in the early part of the 20th century that said 1.3 percent of the American population were addicts. Today, that number is 1.3 percent of the American population are addicts. That addiction is not something that drugs cause Addiction is something that an individual brings to the drug. In fact, I, I ran across a guy up in uh, up in uh, New England a number of years ago. I'm at a Rotary Club, and this guy comes up to me at the end of the meeting, and he says, I'm a recovered heroin addict. He's a guy about 50 years old. And I said, oh, great. How's the recovery going? And he looked at me kind of sternly, and he said, I'm a recovered heroin addict. And I said, oh, I'm sorry. I said, I thought the recovery lasted forever. He says, here's the deal. When you get into recovery is when you finally understand that heroin is your problem and you stop using it. When you become recovered is when you realize that heroin was never your problem, that you were the problem, then you're recovered. And I kind of like that idea of taking responsibility for people's own actions. I'm just thinking of an 18-year-old who can go fight a war, hold an M16, but cannot have a drink. And I also know I've traveled the world and I've seen, you know, in Europe, a 16-year-old having a glass of wine. You don't see the al alcoholism that we see in the United States. This thing about getting hammer is not even in their vernacular. And I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, Peter, but is it because of the forbidden fruit factor, because it's forbidden, because it's illegal, then it's so much more fun. And that's why you see this rampant uh, way of people using drugs and alcohol. It's funny that you mentioned that. Uh, you know what the very first incidents that we have any historical record of prohibition was? Adam and Eve. Absolutely. And also, also the first example of zero tolerance. All right? No matter how big a bite of the apple you took, you were out of the garden. All right? Now, why didn't it work? I mean, it should have worked there, right? There was only two people that had to be watched. There was only one tree of knowledge in the garden. And the, the creator, the all-seeing creator, was the cop. Now, it should have worked. 
Why didn't it work? Well, if you read that story in Genesis, it tells you why it didn't work. Because it says in there that after the Creator created those two people, the Creator granted something to them. And that was called free will. The right to choose whether or not they ate from the tree. And when we pass laws like these prohibitionary laws, we are trying to take away that Creator-given gift. And I don't think that that is our purpose in life. Now, I'm not a religious person, so I'm not pictured religion here. <laughs> I am just saying that that's a story that a lot of people have heard and know, and it's a, it, it should be the story that tells us when you hear the word prohibition, no, that's not a good idea. It didn't even work in the Garden of Eden. And I remember during my college years taking some law courses when I was told, your right ends where mine begins. Isn't this what it's mm-hmm. all about? And we have to take our one and only intermission. But let me just say this. We have prostitution. It's the oldest profession in the world. We cannot fight. We cannot make it illegal. So if we are fighting this war for over 40 years, like you said, if you go to Vietnam or any war, right now the war on terror is the same way. We don't see any end right. in sight. We don't have uniforms. We don't have a country of origin. We're just going to fight this war for a long time. So special interest comes to mind. But let's take the state of Nevada. Is the only jurisdiction in the U.S. where prostitution is permitted. Not in Las Vegas, right. not in ma- you know the major cities, but people can just go do it. But they have very regulated policies there. They have medical tests all the time, and people are safe. They understand that it's illegal, but if it's there for people to use it, so be it, because we accept the fact that it's there. Why shouldn't the same thing happen with drugs when alcohol and tobacco are even worse? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. No argument from this guy. So we have to take a one and only intermission. Uh, Peter, how can people learn more about LEAP and your work? Well, LEAP.cc or CopsayLegalizedDrugs.com takes them to the same website. Um, get a hold of us. We are a 501c3 nonprofit. Uh, so that tells you two things about us. One is the government knows about us. And two is if you donate money to us, you can write it off on your taxes. So that's kind of nice. Uh, none of our speakers at LEAP are paid, but we do cover expenses and we do have a staff of bookers that book speakers and those are paid people and stuff like that. So it does cost some money to do this work that we're doing. But if you think that what we're doing is good, go to LEAP.cc, CopsayLegalizedDrugs.com. Look around, see what you can find. And if you're really interested and you think that we're talking about something you want more people talking about, send a donation. That's great. Folks, don't go anywhere. I'm here with former police captain Peter Christ discussing drugs and why prohibition does not work. And when we come back, I'll discuss more of the arguments that you see from both sides so that everybody can be prepared and have an informed discussion with all parts. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thank you for listening to the first segment of this very important interview. To listen to the rest, go to VeritasRadio.com and subscribe. You will receive your login immediately. We'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and we'll be right back. Enjoy. She likes to sleep with the radio on So she can dream of her favorite song The one that no one has ever sung Since she was small She'll never know that she made it up She had a soul and we ate it up 
where she wins back the love of a man everyone knows that he's never took her heart and she took his name He couldn't stand taking all the blame He left her only with guilt and shame And then she cracked Oh
bugged Another died and the world just shrugged it off This is Peter Christ from Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, and you are listening to Veritas Radio.